Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 24th, 2020. This is episode 2588 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because most of it's not me. That's right, it's the expert counsel. My better half outside of my marriage, I guess I would say when I say the expert counsel. They do an amazing job. Now, if you're new to this show and you've never heard it before, let me explain the genesis of the expert counsel. I started this show in 2008, June of 2008. That's how long we've been around. That's how we're at 2,500 plus episodes. And um, for about a year and a half, I did the show in my car. It was just me on individual subjects. And we did do feedback shows, but it was all like email feedback. I'd make some bullet points, put them on some index cards, and I would read them in my car and do the show in a mobile studio that was a, a Jetta D Diesel TDI. Uh, for so, Some of you guys have been around and stuck with me so long, you remember those days. The bad audio, me screaming at Ascon drivers, all that stuff. And then I finally got to the point where I was doing well enough with the show that I walked away from what most people could see a, consider a dream career in corporate America. That uh, was about 10 years ago that I walked away from the corporate world. And I got into doing the podcast with better quality audio, though not studio quality, and I still am not there because I want the show to be authentic, so it is what it is. And I started doing call-in shows, and I started doing interviews, and I started meeting some great people. And I would get questions at times and be like, I don't know the answer to that question. I'll go find a subject matter expert and do an interview on that. And we started to develop a schedule. And over the while, we started to get some of these people that we interviewed and saying, wow, these people are really a deep resource. So I started saying, hey, what if I threw them a question, they gave me an answer, and I put like four or five of them together, and that was the genesis of the Expert Council Show. We've been doing those now, I'd say, seven-ish years. And that is because I believe in something. One of my principles, one of my laws of life is don't ever take advice from someone unless they have proven to be competent in the thing that they're giving you advice about. I used to say doing better than you. And that was from my father, and there was a bit of arrogance in there, and I, I learned to temper that with, because if somebody's good at podcasting, even if my podcast is more successful, I'll still take their advice on podcasting because they know something about podcasting. If somebody's run a business, I'll take their advice on business because they've run a business. But if you ask me a question about something, and my knowledge in it's shallow, and I really don't know this, even if I know a lot about the subject, if I don't know about the specific, I want the advice of someone better than me. And that was the genesis of the expert counsel. So what I'm trying to do, and you know, all my years in business, one of the ways I was successful is I kept a deep Rolodex of people that knew things I didn't and knew people I didn't. And what I've tried to do with this show and the expert counsel show every week is give you access to that kind of depth. And the people we have, they do that. Let me tell you what we've got for you today. We got a question on what Zone 5 permaculture is for Jeff Lawton. Talk about an expert. I would say the number one permaculturist in the world, and I wouldn't apologize for it. Uh, homeschooling as a single parent from Mike and Sue Laprise. Um, cooking on the trail for bad cooks and getting resupplied by mail with Jessica Dixie Mills. Dixie's awesome. We have not had her on for a while. She's been gallivanting in Europe. She's back. She's got a great answer for us on this one. If you are new to the show and you're not sure who Dixie Mills is, if you remember the old travel shows with this chick, Samantha Brown, in it, 
I like Dixie Mills to me is like the Samantha Brown of the modern day that does all her own video work but hikes in the woods. Like that's that's Dixie. I think Dixie's awesome. Um, then Sean Mills who is a, a, an engineer by trade in the energy sector, working heavily with solar uh, specifically, but all things, battery backup, etc. He's going to be answering a question today on kilowatt meters. Do they, are they worth the investment? And vampire loads. And I'm actually going to point something out um, about kilowatt meters that I don't think Sean actually covers here, where I think they have where they are at their best, like one of the projects I'm doing right now. Uh, next up, Nick Ferguson. Probably the, the, when it comes to plant knowledge, horticultural knowledge, the smartest person that I know in real life is Nick Ferguson. He's going to answer a question for you on Hansons versus Nanking Cherries. He's also going to talk to us about pasturing rabbits because when it comes to permaculture design, homesteading, and animal husbandry, this guy's an expert as well. J.R. Haley, one of my favorite people to just hang out with. And this guy is a gun guy. And I, the reason I, I, I had a lot of people over the years that wanted the position JR has with guns. And they were all tactical types. They didn't know anything about, you know, a Winchester 3030. But I was like, I need a tactical kind of thing, but I don't think I have enough gun questions to have two here. And when I met JR, I'm like, This is the guy that can talk to you about full-on military weapons, about the civilian equivalents, and can tell you about an octagon barrel lever action uh, Winchester from the 1800s all at the same time. And so he's going to talk to us today about shotgun slugs and choke considerations. And me? Guess what I'm doing now? Of all the crazy shit that you've seen me do for 12 years, this is the craziest thing ever. I have been threatening to do this, and I am not making a joke today, though the whole thing kind of is a joke. I'm running for president, and I don't want you to vote for me, and I'll tell you why during my segment, and since that'll be a rather uh, minor segment, and I'll just tell you, you can learn more right now by going to Spearco2020.com. Don't vote for me. I'm going to probably also add a slogan there that's going to be a clear vision for America, just because I think the Democrats are going to do that, and I want to ruin it for them when they do, by saying, you're ripping me off. You, 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 I just think that's the obvious slogan, right? Because it's going to be something like Warren Sanders, a clear vision for America. Hey, 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 it's me. Don't vote for me and a clear vision for America. You can't say that. Don't vote for them either. Anyway, you can learn more at Spirico2020.com and you can get involved by giving us money uh, that we're not going to spend on a campaign at all. We're just going to spend it on ourselves. I, I'm not kidding. I'm going to be an honest politician. Funny that. Anyway, since that's going to be kind of like really a short segment, I'm also going to talk to you about something that as a prepper and as somebody known in the prepper space, I'm getting a lot of concern questions about right now, the deadly coronavirus. I'm going to tell you why you should probably be more concerned, and I'm going to throw a little pop culture reference here, and I'd love to know who got it. I'm not going to explain it. You probably have more to worry about from a lack of adhesive ducts than you do from the coronavirus, and I'll tell you why. I'm also going to tell you why this is a heads up to stay on it with your prepping. This is a heads up for that. This is not the one that's going to get us. But sooner or later, when it comes to the world of pandemics, something is going to cause a true global pandemic. And it's going to look a lot like this. It's just going to be different. And I'll tell you how you'll know that when it happens. And I didn't say if, I said when. Though some of you may never see it. Because I, don't, I know it will happen. But I don't know if it'll happen in the next year or 100 years. I really don't. That's the whole point of being prepared. If we knew it was going to happen, 
We wouldn't have to get prepared until we knew it was going to happen. See, we'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. I wanted to start out today with kind of a reminder about the MSB, though. If you like this show and the work that we do and all this wonderful stuff that we bring you, support us and then get your money back. I'm going to give you one discount vendor today that I think you should think about if you use CBD products. Hemp Magic, H-E-M-P-M-A-G-I-K, HempMagic.com. Um, I have a huge discount for you guys. It's like 20% on Hemp Magic products. Most of you, if you use CBD product, if you if you try the Hemp Magic product, I think you're going to really like it. It's it's the best quality product I've tried myself, and. In a single order, you will probably get your money back because CBD is kind of expensive. If not, two and there's no way you don't. And if you're the type of person that uses it for anxiety or some other uh, therapeutic means, seizures, whatever, um, on a daily or even weekly basis, there is no way in which that one discount alone doesn't like multiply pay for your um, your membership by itself. And then there's like 78 other companies that do discounts. So when I tell you guys to join the MSB, I'm not asking for charity. I'm giving you value for value, and I'm trying to give you more value than the money that you spend. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into things today. Let's start out with a question for Jeff Lawton. Let me tell you how this question came about. Uh, Mike Virtues, who I really like, man, he's a good dude. I've had him on the show. Uh, he was part of the whole Permit Ethos thing. We sponsored him to go through Elaine Ingham Soils uh, course. Uh, so I'm not putting him down at all, but he made a statement, you know, using the Crowder meme, you know, blah, 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 changed my mind. There's no such thing as Zone 5 changed my mind. And his contention was that, you know, if you have mismanaged woods, that's not permaculture. And most people, if they have a big enough property, what they call Zone 5 is just the stuff they ignore. And that the whole concept of permaculture is that, like, we just don't touch Zone 5, and that doesn't really work at all. So I kind of summed that up, and I sent that to Jeff and said, I there are people out in the permaculture world that are of the um, ill-informed, and I want to say ill-informed because you can you can derive this opinion if you don't have enough information, even looking at the work of people like Bill Mollison in his books, if you don't read everything and you only read one thing. But they have this belief that Zone 5 is like, we should never touch it. In fact, nobody should ever step foot on it, and it's nature without humans. And I've always said that humans and nature go together. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have no idea. I think, I mean, I think I know, but I have no idea what you're about to hear. I've given you my opinion on Zone 5, and now I'm going to listen to this response by Jeff with you. He sent this to me yesterday. I have not heard it yet myself. Maybe he'll say I'm completely wrong. We'll find out. And then I'm going to come back for you with, before we go on our next one, Quote of the day by Thomas Sowell. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question about Zone 5 and what exactly Zone 5 is, um, and whether it's totally unmanaged, untouchable, or whether it's actually a sin to, to touch it from a permaculture sense. Okay, Let, let's, let's just work this out for a minute. What is Zone 5? Zone 5 is actually the wilderness. And the main thing we use Zone 5 for is to go and learn. So Zone 5 is a teacher. So we go to learn how nature repairs itself, how nature manages itself, how natural systems, nature and natural systems self-replicate, how how fertility is maintained, succession happens. But um, if, if you go through the zones from the middle... Um, let's forget about zone zero a minute because that's uh, uh, 
uh, a sort of questionable thing itself that it's all in a inside the house or inside the person and the general feeling of, of somebody. Let's go to the practical zone of zone one. Zone one is the uh, inner inner garden, the the the, the um, kitchen garden, if you like. It's the most intense zone. It doesn't exist without us. In zone one, we are truly the teacher. Um, zone one are, are, are systems that only exist with people, and if people stop interacting with zone one, they don't exist. Um, so the, th- this is where we are totally uh, the manager. And very much we can teach from zone one. Zone two is immediately a partnership with natural systems um, as um, uh, uh, one of the main parts of zone two. It, 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 it immediately becomes uh, supported by natural functions and there's uh, a reduction of input from people and it's much more uh, long-term and durable and, and needs less maintenance schedules. Zone three is even more so. Zone four is a is a managed forest of some type. Um, and uh, each, as we move out to the larger zones, um, the human uh, input is less and the natural input is more until we get to zone five, where we are totally just uh, the visitor, uh, the student, the learner, um, the total observer, but we can go into zone five and sustainably hunt and gather uh, from the wilderness. So at this point, we are the hunter and gatherer, if you like, which uh, doesn't deplete the system. Um, hunting and gathering can be part of a management because we are part of nature and uh, we can be a sustainable part of nature, believe it or not. Um, when we come all the way back into the inner zones, we become the manager of a hunter and gatherer system, really. So, you know, when you're in a, a permaculture system, the more intense zones are more and more diverse. They have more and more interactions from people, but um, it's still somewhat unpredictable. So you go out in the garden, you go out into your food forest, you, you take a bowl with you to harvest. You're never quite 100% sure exactly what you're going to bring in, um, what you're going to gather. Um, it, it is very much like you've got a hunter and gather designer system in the inner zones and a truly hunter and gatherer um, interaction in the wilderness. So um, wilderness requires no management. Um, and uh, we start to buffer fire and things like that with zone four um, and, um, and zone three, two and of course intensely in zone one um so uh fire being a very relevant point at this uh at this point in history in australia so um i think it's a wonderful thing to walk yourself in your mind from uh your zone one two three four out of five um and and realize what it is that you're interacting with and your diminishing interaction as you go out especially over time schedules and and that the order of, of scale of size of your interactions over time um, until you get out to zone five where you are literally the truly sustainable permaculture kind of indigenous uh, where you, you can hunt and gather sustainably. Okay, there you go. Thank you. So I really like that answer, but I think that, and this is on me, that maybe I didn't convey enough of what Mike is actually concerned about here. And I've been looking to get Jeff back on for an interview. 
and maybe a central topic of discussion, and I think that this would be a good one because I think what Mike actually was trying to get at with, and maybe just phrase it wrong with there is no zone five, is what if that, let's say I have a fairly large piece of land, what I'm calling my zone five is 30 acres, and that 30 acres is messed up from mismanagement, from poor harvest decisions, from things like that in the past. So it is a sick 30 acres. And if I don't touch it, it won't get better. And I think that's what Mike meant. And, and I'll give you some of my thoughts on that. And when I get Jeff on and we, we, we expand on this, we'll see what he thinks. Or maybe he'll even listen to this and, uh, and expand on it myself. I'd say there's a couple things about that. Number one, if it's actually a forested system, it may not be in your lifetime, but it will achieve balance and equilibrium on its own. It will recover. It may have a lot of trees die. It may get hit by beetles and boars and stuff like that. But the forest will reclaim forest if we leave it alone. As long as there is sufficient um, climate, environment, and soil for trees to grow. And you can see this in places like Chicago. In industrial areas where the buildings are crumbling and trees are growing through and on top of and eating concrete structures and demolishing them. And that if we went away as a species, and the one thing we would have to do before we disappeared for this to happen is shut down our nuclear plants. Because without us monitoring, eventually they will all go, okay? So as long as we did something to shut those down and we went away, If you came back here in 10,000 years, it would be difficult to even tell that we were ever here. And I know that seems impossible, but almost everything would crumble. Almost everything, steel and concrete alike, would crumble and be overtaken. So in time, unless it is a massive desertification Or something that is destroyed, like a lot of the western United States, and I, I'm still trying to get either Graham Hancock or Randall Carson on to talk about this. There are places where it's just wiped out, and it's from natural events. And if we want that to come back, we got to go do something. But eastern woods, it will recover. And it may look like a totally different forest when it becomes old growth under its new forest, But it, and that is the teacher. So that's one part of this. The other part of this is I do not believe that something being a zone five precludes us from some level of active management to correct an imbalance. And there's a, there, there may be, and this would be interesting to explore with Jeff, a little bit of a fanciful concept of zone five on a farm. Because do we really take a huge piece of a farm and not do anything with it? And in most farms, even permaculture farms, that is not the case. That, that really isn't. So it will be interesting to, to flesh this out further. And even though I disagree with Mike's assertion, I think he brings up a valid point of discussion, and we will take it further in the future. But now I got a totally different question. Let's shift gears, and let's talk about homeschooling for single parents. That, indeed, seems like a challenge. Mike and Sue have been homeschooling forever, I guess as long as they've had kids and foster kids and adopted kids, and they are amazing people. But they've been able to do it as a couple. What if you got to do it alone? This is Michael and Sue Lepreze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert console. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from David from MeWe. 
It would be interesting to hear thoughts on fitting homeschooling in with maintaining a full-time job. You can do it. Yeah, you can. the answer is yes, you can do it. So it might take a little bit of flexibility. And the first thing we would recommend is that you start with your relationship with your kids and you get to know them better because there's going to be different motivations that take place at school based on grades and peers and teachers, and they might respond to you a little bit differently. So what we recommend for anybody thinking about homeschooling is to start after school and on the weekends and come up with a chore or a home care plan where you're learning to work together and getting to know each other better, and then pick a topic that you can start learning together, like Jack's doing a new gardening series, and that's if kids love gardening. And so you could follow that series and work together and kind of get to know each other a little bit better before pulling your kid out of school and not really knowing what you're doing or how well you'll get along. And in many cases, when you pull your kids out of school, the first thing you want to do is de-school, right? take a break, uh, decompress. So have the kids just go through a period of a week or two of just relaxation. And some kids will love that and some kids will hate that and they'll want to get right into school. But you might want to make them take a break anyways. And that just goes to show you how different kids are different. Everybody's an individual. So as we're looking at that, the first thing that comes to our mind is working full-time. If you have the traditional homeschool model would be two parents, one works one works at home, homeschooling. And even the one parent who works at home, homeschooling, they're not homeschooling on their own. They have friends come in. They have piano teachers come in. We co-op. We do all kinds of things in a collaborative way. So nobody's doing this by themselves. And before we move on, I just wanted to talk about mindset slash lifestyle. Right? One of the things we talk about is that homeschooling is really a, a lifestyle. So part of that mindset is, so what is school? Right. And and the understanding that it takes effort to do this, whether you're, it's, you're a single parent, whether it's a couple, it takes effort. It's whether that effort is worthwhile, removing kids from government indoctrination and teaching them to learn to love to learn. Is it worth the effort? You have to answer that question first. And if your child is having no trouble at school, they're having no relationship problems, the teachers like them and they're getting along homeschooling is going to seem like a lot more effort. If your child is struggling with anything at school, homeschooling is actually easier once you get off the ground. Right. So the typical model, two parents, one works at a job, one works at home, homeschooling. Uh, another model would be both parents full-time working. So one of the issues you would have there is to, to think about is the number of kids you have, what ages they are, and how independent are they in terms of uh, their ability to learn independently? And the independence isn't necessarily based on their age because our four-year-old worked independently on his schoolwork as I was having many other children. And at four, he would sit down and just do his work and just bring it to me when he had a question, which was very rare because he was already reading. So uh, there's a lot of variables in this if you're working from home and trying to homeschool a kid. Yes, um, because you might have a child that doesn't start reading until they're 10 or 11, and then they're going to need a little bit more attention. Or bit more. if you're okay with them waiting to learn to read and providing other opportunities, crafts, and science projects and stuff in lieu of reading and watching a lot of videos or finding some digital platform that will help them a lot and they can stay motivated through that, then the reading is not everything. 
Well, one of the things then with two parents working is job flexibility. And in today's day and age, jobs are much more flexible. Uh, I work from home four days a week. So <clears throat> there is that flexibility. Uh, or you can have people working on different shifts. So one person works uh, the daytimes and one person works the evening. My brother-in-law and my sister did that. And we did that. Michael <clears throat> would get home at five, but I had to be to work at four. So he had a babysitter, a little neighbor girl that would come over in the gap there and um, just watch the kids. And that's what we did so that we could continue homeschooling and have enough money. So um, if two parents are working from home, that is fantastic. We have a couple we know. The mom is German, married an American soldier, lives here. She's fluent in German and English. So she translates online and she edits and she writes. She works six hours a day. That's her goal. She gets paid by the project. So she is very good and she's very fast. It's super flexible. She can do it anytime. She has to do five, so many a week. But um, she has five kids from two to 14 and she has a routine. But if something comes up, they want to go play, then she'll fill in later at night. And then the dad does IT from home. Now, the most challenging one would be the single parent work from home. Or a single parent who has a job. Job, right. <clears throat> and the ones we know that are successful and it's really simple is like our situation where our daughter lives with us and we homeschool her daughter. But we know a number of other single moms who live with the grandparents and the grandparents help them. And the one mom, she's a speech therapist, so she works part-time from home. And then sometimes she has to go meet with people, but they usually come to her house where she lives with her parents. Other ones they do like at-home online things or evening sales so that um, it creates a lot of flexibility where their kids, they still get to spend time with their kids. Like our daughter tends to take time off from work to go on field trips with us because, quite frankly, that's the most fun part of homeschooling, not teaching reading. And, and one of the things along those lines is to remember that people want to help. <clears throat> so within your community, there may be people who aren't even family members, <coughs> excuse me, who might want to help. Our dentist, uh, one of the ladies who worked for our dentist, uh, her, her daughter was having struggles in school, was being bullied and stuff. And she needed to pull her out of school. Um, and she brought her to work at the dentist's office. So her homeschooling experience was in the dentist's office homeschooling. And then she got hired one day a week and hired two days a week. It was really cool. Yeah. And um, so flexibility is really the key to the homeschool lifestyle. And even our schedule isn't 8 to 3. Our schedule, we start at 6.30 because I have to get some things done with my older kids before my three little monsters wake up because they're so loud. And that's just the way it is. So another thing I'd like to recommend, if you go back and listen to Jack's episode 2579 on January 13th, there's a, he talks about a school called Prenda, P-R-E-N-D-A. It's a micro school. It looks like it's mostly in Arizona. But these are just around the corner, and they're very exciting to me because you can have a school in your home with a couple of kids and earn an income if that's what you want to do as the single parent. It's pretty cool. Yes, we've had people ask us to homeschool their kids, and we did that for a while with Troy, where um, he was homeschooled at our house um, up and, until... And Jeremy. He, and Jeremy, yes, that's right. But this is um, much more organized, digital. It's easier to track. The parents can go look at their stuff. It's pretty exciting. I'm trying to get a little more information about that. Right. 
So this has been Michael and Sue LaPreeze reminding you that when you're designing the life you'd love to live, remember, people want to help. Back to you, Jack. All right, next up we have one for um, Jessica Dixie Mills on cooking on the trail, specifically for people that consider themselves to be poor cooks in the first place, and getting resupplied when you're doing long hikes, like through hikes or even long section hikes on things like the Appalachian and the Pacific Rim Trail and things like that. Dixie knows a little bit about that, being uh, ha having achieved what's known as the Triple Crown, through hiking the three major trails in the United States. It's a huge achievement, and she's lived on the trail a long time, so she has a unique perspective into this. Dixie, if you suck at cooking, what do you cook, and how do you get more food without going home and starting over again? Hey, TSPers, Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land, and today I'm here to answer a question from Chris who asks, Do you have any advice concerning meals and resupply on a thru-hike for a bad cook? Details. I've backpacked around Colorado with my longest trip being four days in the Maroon Bells area, but next summer I plan on thru-hiking the Colorado Trail. On my previous trips, I simply carried Mountain House meals, but that would be very expensive and heavy to carry for a month-long trip. I would imagine you did not use those meals, so how did you plan your meals and resupply? Is there a source that has backpacking meals that are easy for bad cooks? Thank you. Well, Chris, thank you for your question. And just first off out of the gate, I want to say that it doesn't really matter what type of food you carry. It's going to be too heavy to carry all of it for a four to six week hike. And I've read that a through hike of the Colorado Trail generally takes about five weeks. So you're going to have to resupply regardless of what you carry. But I'll go into the resupply side of things in just a little bit. Just to get to your main question, if you're a bad cook, You could always do the no-cook option, so things like tortilla, bagels, peanut butter, some people cold-soak foods that you would generally cook. But I'm assuming that since you asked specifically about cooking, that even if your skills aren't up to par, you're probably a fan of warm meals in the evenings, or maybe you plan on carrying a stove anyway for coffee in the morning. That's Definitely one of the big reasons that I carry the weight of a stove. So you could really just keep it simple if you're wanting to cook and go with something that you can add hot water to, you know, something you just boil your water and then dump some packet of food inside. So something like nor pasta sides and rice sides are a, a typical staple for through hikers. And you'll notice on those packets that it says you should add milk or butter, but you really can just make those with water. And you might have to change the consistency a little bit, uh, maybe add a little bit more water so you make up for the milk. But You kind of learn that stuff as you go along. And you can even do something like ramen noodles. I know a lot of people call it ramen, but I will always call it ramen. So ramen, ramen, potato, patata. So you could do something like that and add spinach, you know, either to those pasta sides, rice sides, or the ramen noodles, or broccoli. So you can just grab fresh spinach at the grocery store and, and throw that in as you cook it. And it really isn't anything that you have to be skilled to do. You can get fresh broccoli or frozen broccoli, and that stuff will keep just fine in your pack for a few days. I would say the frozen broccoli might get mushy a little faster, so probably your best bet is to go with some fresh stuff. And then for protein, you can bring along something like nuts and jerky, and they have little full packets of Spam that I like, or tuna, 
Or if you decide you want to up your skill level a little bit and do something special, you can add dehydrated ground beef. So you can prepare that ground beef at home. And I have a recipe for that and several videos with some different food options, whether you're wanting to cook or no cook. And I will send those to Jack to include in the show notes so that you can get some ideas of things that are my favorites. And if you think that you want to get a little fancier and you might want some things that you dehydrate at home, then you can check out backpackingchef.com. That's where I got my ground beef recipe. And I would highly recommend just kind of taking a look at that. But the best way, if you're afraid that you might not be great with some of those recipes or, or you don't really want to fool with dehydrating foods, is just keep it simple and, and do some of those things, even like macaroni and cheese that basically you just add water to. Now let's talk about the resupply side of things. Every three to seven days or so, you're going to come to a road crossing where you can hitchhike to town or potentially arrange for a shuttle ride if you'd like to do that. And then sometimes the trail actually leads into town itself, like the path becomes a sidewalk in town. But knowing where these resupply points are is fairly easy. There are several resources. One that I prefer to use is the Gut Hook app because it can be your navigation through GPS. It can show you information about elevation profile, water sources, and then also these resupply points, you know, different towns that you can stop in to get food, stay the night, do laundry, shower, and it will have all sorts of information about all of this stuff. So it's, it's a great resource. If you don't want to go with the app or you don't want that as your only source of information, there are probably some guidebooks out there, uh, Facebook groups where you can kind of chat with some people about places they resupplied, etc. Just do a Google search and I'm sure you'll find a plethora of information. It'll be like drinking from a fire hose. But once you get into town, you're going to have a couple of options. Either A, you're going to go to a grocery store to purchase your food for the next stretch, or B, you're going to go to a post office or hostel area where you've had a package sent to yourself, whether you send it ahead of time or whether you have a friend send it to you as you go down the trail. Now, me personally, I prefer option A, which is just buy things as I go because there's nothing that I hate more than wasting money. And if I'm buying something in my hometown and then paying postage to send it to myself, then it's one, a waste of, of time, but two, I'm paying that postage for something that I could have just purchased in a town in Colorado. Now, there are some small towns that may have limited options, so if you have a certain thing that you know you like to eat, then maybe you would prefer option B, and you know, you'll have some things sent to yourself. Or like I said, if you get a little fancy with your food and you want to dehydrate some ground beef, or if you have a restrictive diet of some sort, then it makes more sense for you to do option B. I'm going to send Jack another video link that covers sending general delivery and bounce boxes, just some things to help you if you do decide to mail some packages to yourself for resupply. I will say that a lot of these trail towns have learned to capitalize on the business opportunity of having through hikers stay in their town. So even if you're in a pretty small area, usually they have a small selection of things that through hikers would prefer to eat or maybe even some minimal replacement gear. 
But overall, Chris, I think just keeping it simple to start with in your cooking experiences is the best way to not just get frustrated and give up. You don't even have to cook all three meals. Maybe you prefer a hot breakfast, so you just go with oatmeal every morning, which that all you have to do is heat up some water and pour it in the oatmeal packet. You don't even have to use a pot for that. But again, a lot of this information on different food ideas is in those videos that I'm going to send over to Jack. So I hope that you found this helpful, and thanks again for the question. And if any of the rest of y'all has any questions about backpacking or YouTube in general, feel free to check out my channel over on YouTube, Homemade Wanderlust, or feel free to send in your questions to Jack, and I'll get those back to him. Thanks, y'all, and we'll see you next time. Glad to have her back on the air. She's awesome, and she also sent a buttload of links, and uh, I do have all of them in the show notes for you today, including how to make dehydrated ground beef. A lot of people are like, I can't make freeze-dried ground beef, and if I dehydrate it, well, if you cook it and then you dehydrate it, and there's a little thing you do to it to keep it from turning into like little rocks that break your teeth, it's actually pretty good. Dixie has a video on exactly how to do that and a bunch of other cool stuff, including getting yourself resupplied by mail. It's all in the show notes. Next up, Sean Mills on kilowatt meters. Can they ever pay for themselves? Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I have a question for the expert council. Question, can a kilowatt meter ever pay for itself based on energy savings? At $30, is it possible to ever get a return on investment for identifying and reducing phantom draws from our television, printers, and other random things we leave plugged in? I've been thinking about getting one more for curiosity than anything. Thanks, Nate in Spokane. Well, hey, Nate, thanks for sending in the question. You've actually asked two questions here, so I'll answer both, and then I'll add a little bit of color. Uh, firstly, buy a kilowatt meter. Uh, buying a kilowatt meter will not save you money because you already know that you have vampire loads in your house. All the purchase of the kilowatt meter is going to do is show you what each load is actually worth. As for being able to save at least $30 and reducing random draws, that is 100% the case. You might find you're saving that much every couple of months or a quarter or, you know, a couple times a year. Uh, you might be surprised at how much vampire energy is being sucked out of your pocket. Uh, so there is an NRDC white paper that I have provided the link for, in, uh, for the show notes, uh, that indicated in 2015, the average home in America wastes 23% of their annual electrical usage on idle load electricity. So if your annual power bills are, call it $1,000, $230 of that is wasted on idle load electricity. On one hand, uh, since 2015, most devices have become more energy efficient. So if you've got newer devices, they're probably using less on average. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. On the other hand, uh, and this is the sound of me doing air quotes, more of these devices are smart. So they might be using more electricity waiting for a command to do something from your uh, phone over Wi-Fi, for example. Uh, so as I mentioned, that paper did come out in 2015. And to put that in perspective, Apple introduced the Apple Watch in 2015. And it just took them three short years to become the largest watchmaker in the world. Uh, so that's kind of crazy when you think about it. But, yeah, your vampire loads are in every single room of your house. 
uh, and you know that they're, they're there. Why, that's why you're thinking about getting the kilowatt meter. Um, so yeah, I would say just get in the habit of, you know, either unplugging those items or putting them on a power strip and making sure you turn them off when you leave a room. Uh, personally, I own two kilowatt meters. I, I like them. I think they're cool. I loan them out to friends who are curious. Um, and, and personally, I think one of the best uses for them is to know what the overtime loads are on your must have items. That allows you to properly plan gasoline and propane storage and what size generator you need to utilize uh, that gasoline or propane in. Um, you don't need them to tell you you're wasting electricity. You know that. Uh, you know, but, but if buying the $30 kilowatt meter helps you get to that point, the more power to you, or actually less power to you, I guess. Um, I would say before I went off the grid, that's when I bought my first kilowatt meter, and it really allowed me to identify the loads that I wanted to take with me and the ones that I didn't, as well as I used a kilowatt meter essentially to determine the size of my initial battery bank and, and, and by extension, solar array when, when I initially went off grid. So any of you guys that are thinking about maybe putting in a bug out location or a hunting camp that's going to run off a of solar or battery power or uh, or maybe even just off of a generator, in those cases I can see your, your kilowatt meter really coming into great use allowing you to determine exactly how much electricity you need to account for. All right, well, that's it for my question today. Uh, guys, if you have more questions, get them, in, get them into Jack. Uh, I went from having no backlog and a little bit of spare time to actually a decent backlog and very little spare time these days. But I will work myself through the backlog. If you've sent questions in, I promise I will get them answered. If I can't, I will get a note directly to you letting you know that I can't, maybe directing you to some other resources. Uh, so once again, Sean Mills, HackMySolar.com. Keep the questions coming. Yeah, I, let me tell you where I think the kilowatt meter really excels. If you are, let's say you were you were building a system um, that was going to be at least even partially off grid, or you were making decisions on you know a different appliance or something like that. Being able to actually run that appliance for its common duration for a day or a week. Uh, and then factor in what you pay for electricity and say, this thing costs this much to run. And then saying, so since I'm going to now standardize on, let's say you're running a business, and instead of having one of them, you're going to have five of them. And then making a decision based on that versus trusting specifications would be a, an example. Uh, because you can do all kinds of math and work out, like this thing, the manufacturer says, draws this many watts and... You know, and you often find that when you put a kilowatt meter on something and you look at the reality versus the math based on a specification, that it may not actually be accurate. Or let's say you don't want to do an ass load of math and you're doing something like I am right now. I'm building an indoor vertical farm. And once I get it completely done and it's running as it's designed to run, all I got to do is plug that kilowatt meter in there, enter what I pay for electricity, let it run for a week, and I come up with an absolute spot-on daily cost. Now, what that does is it lets me say, this thing will have to produce X amount of food per week with the food valued at this to pay for the energy plus the materials it takes per week to do this. And then I know this thing is worth having or this thing's not worth having. 
Likewise, I can say, well, I'm going to run my pump once every two hours or once every three hours. And I can run it for a day one way and a day the other way and immediately see, like, how much money does that save me? And then is it really worth it? Am I better off with it running more frequently? Or if I don't need it, how much does it save? Maybe I can run it once every four hours. What's that save? Am I going to run my lights 18 hours a day or am I going to run my lights 14 hours a day? How much difference in growth do I get versus the cost? And with all of that being factored in, I can start to dial in, and this will take months to get right down to brass tacks, but I'll be able to say the most efficient way to run this thing is this way. And then this is how much the daily cost of operations is, factoring in average materials per week plus time per week plus energy per week. These are the things that I think a kilowatt meter is, is good at. Telling you you have X amount of vampire draw, if it's capable of vampire draw, it has vampire draw. That's about all that it's going to tell you, and it's a small amount. So if you just wanted to kill vampire draw, you would just do whatever is necessary to kill all your vampire draw. I agree with Sean on that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. This one is for... Nick Ferguson, it's actually two questions. You combine them. I love when my experts do that. One is like, what's the difference between Nanking and Hanson's bush cherries? And the other one is about pasturing rabbits, and will that apply a nitrogen load that you need to be mindful of in your pasture? Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here from homegrownliberty.com and rareplantstore.com. I want to let you know I'll probably have a short trip coming up to Texas in the next month or so and also likely to East Tennessee at the end of April. So I'll be traveling through Arkansas, uh, probably also either on my way or on my way back uh, through Mississippi and Alabama. So I don't know. To be determined, but uh, I just want to let you know if you are wanting to get in on one of my consulting tours to shoot me an email. I'd like to get a couple more scheduled before the heat starts to set in. Uh, with spring and early summer is normally really busy for me, so if you're wanting to do that before late summer, now is the time to do it. I'll probably be in the DFW area and all over East Texas. So shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com, and I'll put you on the tour schedule. Now, on to the question, or in this case, questions for the week. I've got a double dose of helpful info from your friendly neighborhood consultant. All right, Nick, what's the difference between Nanking Bush Cherry and Hansen's Bush Cherry? Thanks, Nate. Well, Nanking Cherry is Prunus tomentosa. And Hansen's bush cherry is Prunus bessii. So those are different species, both in the genus Prunus. Nanking cherry is USDA zones 2 to 7. It's low maintenance, 6 to 10 foot tall, hardy, very pest and disease resistant, sweet sour, so it tastes good fresh out of hand, lower tannins, so not as good for brewing, bright cherry red color, so it's kind of pretty, the berries are pretty. Um, it's a good adjunct in preserves, jellies, and brewing. Hansen's bush cherry, like I said, is Prunus bessii, USDA zones 3 to 8. It's also very low maintenance, 4 to 5 foot tall, hardy, very pest and disease resistant, sweet, tart, astringent with a slight bitterness, higher tannins, so it's great for brewing, closer to the normal dark cherry color of sweet cherries, so it's not as bright and showy on the bush as the Nanking cherry. 
which might be a good thing for you if you're trying to keep birds from eating it. It's not as good fresh eating out of hand. It's better as an adjunct in preserves and jellies, juice, and in brewing. Both are excellent, low-maintenance, highly resilient fruits that you can put in your landscape. And in most cases, you can kind of put them there and forget about them if you want really low-maintenance. Prunus bessii is about half the size as tomentosa, and bessii has a little bit of a larger range due to its tolerance of heat over that of the tomentosa. And as it just so happens, I have a few left over from my plant sale. So if you head over to rareplantstore.com, you can pick up a pack of five Hansen bush cherry at about the price of one with shipping from most online retailers. So on to our next question. And James asks, how much do I need to take nitrogen load into account when pasturing rabbits? He says, I currently have a farmstead ra- uh, raising pastured broilers, Cornish Cross, on only 1.6 acres. I'm looking to expand with leased land and add more species, but at this time I'm having trouble adding that land, so I'm looking for complementary enterprises. Joel Salatin and others say to only tractor broilers over a piece of ground once per year due to the nitrogen load, while other experts, Paul Grieve, Mac Badger, and Terrell Spencer, say two or three passes a year is fine in their eyes. How would adding in rabbits change the equation? I'd pasture them in a way similar to how Daniel Salton does, starting them with mama in a grow cage and then moving on to pasture. I'm currently doing broilers, but I'm still in the early planning stages for rabbits, so any other info on rabbits, time and maturity, yield, and pasture, um, that'd be great for context. I'm outside of Memphis in Zone 7 with average pasture quality. James. All right, James, my short answer is don't worry about it. If you have the pasture... Um, and you give it enough rest time for the grass to regrow, and you can't see any evidence of the chicken manure still in the pasture, then don't sweat it in tracting the rabbits over the same spot if the rabbits are following the chickens, you know, like a month or so later. It would, of course, be better to offset the path so you aren't following the exact same path, but I doubt you'll uh, have any issues to speak of. If you're tractoring them both at the same time, so concurrent enterprises, I'd put the rabbits first, give it enough time to regrow, and then follow the rabbits with the birds. That way, the more lumpy, messy manure from the birds is on there after the rabbits have already gone through. You can also think about overseeding and maintaining moist soils with irrigation to help suck up the extra nitrogen in those interim periods since you're only dealing with a little over an acre and a half. If you're concerned about it, then you could use a lawnmower with a bagger to chop the grass for the rabbits where you don't have birds and bring it to the growing bunnies instead of tractoring them. I like tractoring them, but cutting fodder and bringing it to them can be easier and more profitable and have fewer issues, uh, especially with predators and coccidiosis. So if you do that, you cut the fodder whether that's tree fodder, which I also have a few uh, tree fodder packages still available on rareplantstore.com. You cut the fodder, whether it's grass or trees, bring that to them. You keep the manure concentrated and you use it to grow earthworms or make compost. Nitrogen issues would be not a problem if you did that. So short answer, I know, but honestly, I don't see rabbits as being a huge nitrogen source compared to chickens, especially those grow out bunnies. Just pay attention to your pasture. If it's looking a little too run down or if it's looking like it's getting nitrogen burnt, then 
you have your answer on your stocking density. All right, I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. And remember, guys, I have a few opportunities for consulting in the next month or two on my trips to Texas and Tennessee. So don't miss out on that chance. Just shoot me an email to Nick at HomegrownLiberty.com. And remember, I also have those uh, uh, Prunus Bessii, the Hanson's Bush Cherry, and a pack of five at RarePlantStore.com. That's all I have for today. Hope you're having a wonderful week. Do good things. So a couple quick ads there. Number one, on the bunnies and the poop and the pasture, I completely agree with Nick, but I'm going to go even further and say it is absolutely not going to be a problem. Unless you're going to put these rabbits in some kind of rabbit tractor and you're going to leave them in place for, like, weeks, if you're going to move them with the frequency that's going to coincide with their grazing of about one-third of the available graze, There is no way that rabbits become a buildup of nitrogen. They're a cool manure. It's much less than poultry. It's not even worth your consideration. If you actually figure out a way to put too much rabbit manure in one place with a rabbit tractor, you are going to be feeding the hell out of your rabbits and getting almost no grazing off your pasture. It would take that much to do that. So don't worry about it. On the difference between the Nanking and the Hanson's Bush Cherry, I want, Nick mentioned that the temperature and range and all, but I want to say that it's, it is a significant consideration if you are in the South. I have been into northern climates with Hanson's Bush cherry, and they produce a buttload of cherries, and I have them right here on my hell, you know, it's like hell on earth uh, property, and Hanson's Bush cherries grow cherries on my property. They survive, and they produce, and they're like, yeah, here I am. I'm a honey badger. Here's my, here's your cherries. They are a little tart, a little tannic, etc., but like Nick said, if you're making anything out of them, and it's actually an advantage, just about anything that you would make something out of, it's an advantage to have the tannins for the offset. Nankings are sweet. They are delicious, and the best ones I ever had were in northern Montana. They do grow here. They do survive here. They do sort of produce here, but they are not happy as a producer. They don't make cherries very well in my climate. So the further south you are, the more you want to move toward the Hanson, and the further north you are, the more it doesn't matter. Um, that's my opinion on that one. Let's move on from there, and let's talk a little bit about shotguns, slugs, and chokes. Hey, TSP. JR here with the Expert Council, answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Taking a question today from Mike in Wisconsin. Mike wants to know if you can fire shotgun slugs out of any shotgun barrel. For instance, if you had a full choke barrel, would you be in danger of damaging the barrel by shooting a slug through it? Mike, it's good that you're mindful of this, and there are a few things to consider when setting up your shotgun for slugs. Let's first talk about the different types of shotgun barrels that are available to us. Shotgun barrels will, in most cases, have a fixed choke, a removable insert to set the choke you desire, or have an adjustable choke on the end of the barrel that you can give a twist to pick a different setting. Your chokes will have names like cylinder, improved, modified, and full, with several interim steps in between. On the other hand, some shotgun barrels are dedicated to shooting slugs and are rifled barrels, just like a typical rifle, but in the 
bore diameter of a shotgun, like a 12-gauge or a 20-gauge, for example. In our modern era, along with different type of shotgun barrels and setups that we have to choose from, we also have different types of slugs to choose from as well. A normal shotgun slug will just be an appropriate diameter sized single projectile. It could be just lead, it could be copper jacketed, or many other variations in between, but the gist is that it's one single projectile. We also have rifled slugs. These slugs have little fins on the outside of the slug designed to induce spin on the projectile as it travels down a smooth bore. And the last one, we have our Sabo slugs. These slugs are designed to be shot out of rifled shotgun barrels, whereas the rifling of the barrel grabs onto the outer jacket of the slug, or the Sabo that's around that slug, and induces a spin onto the projectile. Okay, you got all that? <laughs> yeah, it can be even more nuanced in everything that I'm talking about, but that is really the basics of what we're looking at and what's available to us today. So the good news, Mike, normal slugs without rifling and without sabos are safe to shoot out of shotgun barrels with chokes from cylinder to full. The SAMI specs, or Sporting Arms and Ammunition Institute, that details the industry tolerances for manufacturers has designed those standards in a way to alleviate that very concern that you have. But just because it's safe doesn't mean it's going to be the most accurate. And that's where we can start tuning your shotgun up for some longer ranges. In your email, you mentioned 80 yards, but the more accurate options can get well beyond 80 yards too. So if you're going to stick with a smoothbore barrel with a choke, you'll want to look into rifled slugs. Again, these slugs have rifling on the outside of them that induce spin on the projectile as it travels down a smooth bore. If you want to go as far as buying a dedicated rifle barrel, then you're looking at Sabo slugs, and that's going to be the choice that you're going to take. And honestly, that would be more the direction I would put for you on that. Because my experience, we were always able to get a lot better 100-yard hits on the big steel gongs that we were shooting with the rifled barrel and the sable slugs. Um, and that was just all the, all the experiences I had growing up at the shooting range, being about around a lot of older men that were um, shenanigans, all that stuff that was happening. If you run around the Internet, you'll find people that claim – this or that on sabos versus rifled uh, sabos, rifled barrels, slugs with fins on the outside of them. But that was the experience that I had growing up is when I would shoot that saboed slug down a rifled barrel, the gong that we shot at was in the shape of a pig. Like I could bring that pig gong all day long. If I was doing smoothbore, regular slugs or if I was doing smooth bore with rifled slugs it was kind of hit or miss on that for sure but that rifled barrel with sabos 
was very accurate and was able to dial that in. So, Mike, I hope this helps you with your endeavors, man, and best of luck with it. Thanks, Jack. Next up, we have John Pugliano. He's going to talk to us a little bit today um, about a variety of questions, some things with mutual funds, some things with dollar cost averaging. I think he's managed to actually, in you know, one allotted time limit per expert, answer like three really great questions. And then he even has some comments that will tie into my final segment of the day. So let's hear from John, and I'll be back to tell you about Spearco 2020, a clear vision for America. Hey, TSP listeners, we've got several questions that are all involved with various aspects of investing. Let's see if I can tie these all together. Our first question comes from Don, and Don is asking, how do I know when to purchase mutual funds in my retirement accounts with accrued cash? Is this more effective than straight dollar cost averaging for the average investor? Well, Don, first off, no, it's not more effective for the average investor. The average investor isn't paying attention to things. They're not watching the market. They're going to be really susceptible to fear and greed cycles. So trying to market time and invest with accrued cash is not for the average investor. For the average investor that's not paying attention, the best thing for them is just to have the money taken out of their paycheck on a weekly or monthly basis whenever they're paid and a portion of it invested into low-cost index mutual funds that are giving them diversification across the broad market. So Don's question leads into the next question from Keith, and Keith says, should I wait to invest $130,000 until the market backs down? And here's Keith's situation. About two years ago, his wife left her job. She has $130,000 in that old 401k program. Keith had intended to watch it and, you know, try and time the market, buy the dip. Well, things happen, you know, life gets in the way. He forgot to do that. And so here he is, you know, nearly two years later, the market's up at over 3,300 in the S&P 500, and he's still sitting in all this cash. So this is a classic example of a trap that the average investor is going to fall into by not paying attention. You know, in Keith's situation, had he been watching over the last couple years, he would have seen some excellent opportunities, but he wasn't paying attention. So like we just talked about in Don's question, for you, the best thing to do is probably just do straight dollar cost averaging. Now, you're already sitting on all this money, so what should you do? Well, yes, I do think it's reasonable to wait for some type of a pullback. But I got to tell you, you know, we're in an election year. I've said this before that Donald Trump is crazy like a fox. I do think that he set this economy up that we're in right now to run really hot. Employment numbers are high, wages are doing well, and at the same time, things like energy and interest rates are at very low levels. That's going to keep fueling consumption, and we may not see a pullback. Look what happened just recently when we had missile attacks going on in the Middle East. The market barely budged. So, Keith, if I were in your situation, what I would do is I'd just take $13,000 and every month buy into the market. And at this point, I would not only just buy into U.S. index mutual funds, but I'd look at some emerging market and some global index funds as well, because I think the emerging markets have been suppressed for the last two years, and they still have more room to run when compared to U.S. markets. So take about $13,000 every month, put that into the market. That way you'll be dollar cost averaging in. And then later on this spring or maybe into the summer, if some type of a panic does set in and we get some bad news in the media and the market drops down, you know, 10 or 15%, then that would be the time to just go in and buy the dip and take whatever money's remaining of that $130,000 and just buy totally into the market at that point. Okay, then in a similar vein, we have a question from Steve, and Steve says, where should I park $300,000 from the sale of my home? 
Steve's going to be moving across the country, and so he's going to sell his existing house, and then he thinks that there could be a correction in the real estate market, so he wants to stay in cash until that comes, and then buy a house, and he wants to know what he should do with his money in the meantime. So, Steve, as far as your overall assessment here, I'm not so sure that we're going to see a real estate correction anytime soon. You know, a couple years ago, it looked like that may have happened when the Federal Reserve was hell-bent on raising interest rates, but they've totally backed off now. You know, they cut rates three times last year. They said that they're not going to raise rates at all this year. Well, if the Federal Reserve keeps rates low and interest rates remain at or below 4% for 30-year mortgages, I think that this real estate market can keep chugging along. It may taper off some, but I don't see a big 2008 real estate crash coming anytime soon with these low interest rates. Now, Steve, if you do decide to sell your home and stay in cash, then you want to protect and preserve that. I think you should put that money where it's safe, and that means in something like a savings account or a certificate of deposit. If you are going to put it with a discount broker, then you can ask them about their cash equivalent type mutual funds. I do my brokerage through Charles Schwab. They have a fund called SWVXX. It's a cash equivalent short-term mutual fund. There's no fees for moving in and out of it. You know, it's not paying much because interest rates are so low, but you are going to get more than you're going to get in a lot of traditional checking or savings accounts. I think currently right now it's paying about 1.5, 1.7%. And then there are also some ETFs which focus on very short-term bonds. Uh, I like those. I, I definitely wouldn't tie my money up into long-term bonds right now. And so you could look at something called Mint, that's M-I-N-T, this is an ETF that's offered by PIMCO, and last time I checked, that was paying over 2%, and that's a very effective place to park your cash. Now, finally, our last question, this comes from Tactical. I think it's Tactical Redneck. He says that Jack recommends for, you know, 5 to 10% of your money to be in gold, so what should you be doing with the other 85 or 90% of your money? Well, Tactical, like we just talked about in all these other questions... If you're just the average investor and you really don't want to pay attention to this, the best thing to do is to go into broad-based, low-cost index mutual funds or index exchange-traded funds. That's where you're investing broadly in the U.S. economy or in the global economy. There's a lot of funds from Vanguard or Charles Schwab, any of the discount brokers, and most of the large investment firms like Fidelity or BlackRock. They provide either broad-based index funds like investing in the S&P 500 or investing in the NASDAQ. Or if you want to get even more granular and more focused, there are individual sector ETFs that invest specifically in you know, consumer products, consumer discretionaries, transportation, or into industrials or materials or the energy sector. I mean, you can take this as granular or as high level as you as you like. It really depends on what your investing skills are and where you think the market is headed. Personally, for myself and for people that have several hundred thousand dollars or more to invest, I also like investing in individual stocks. That involves having a portfolio of, say, 20 to 30 different stocks. And if you're invested in a stock, you can also choose those that pay dividends. And something else to consider with stocks is, is that there's no fees. And right now, with discount brokers eliminating most or all of the transaction fees, that means that you can buy a, a top-quality stock, something like Apple or Microsoft or Google. You can purchase that for no transaction fee. And unlike an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund, there's also no management fee that goes along with it. And so it's a very, very effective way to invest your money. Now, the real trick there is which 20 or 30 stocks do you buy? 
Well, the bottom line is you want to own quality companies that have demonstrated an ability in the past to make money and a likelihood to keep making it in the future. And I think the best way to find those stocks to invest in is to not pay any attention to what's being hyped up or what's being talked about on MSNBC, but just focus on the basics. What companies are out there consistently making money? I mean, use your situational awareness. Look around. What products and services do you see companies and people purchasing? Well, you know, people go to McDonald's and buy Big Macs. They go to the store. They go to Walmart and they buy Nike tennis shoes. They go on vacation and they fly on Southwest and Delta and they stay at Marriott Hotels. These are the type of companies that continue to grow in a growing economy. Now, I'm not saying run out and invest in these companies right now when the market's at all-time record highs, but these are the things you should be paying attention to. I also tend to be a contrarian and a value investor, and so I like investing in sectors or in individual stocks that are out of favor when other people don't like them. And so to give you an idea of what stocks you should be looking at, I'll tell you right now, I own Boeing. A couple months ago, I bought Boeing stock. I've been playing options on it all last year. It's a company that's been having a problem for the last year because of a couple of uh, plane crashes that took place. But when I look at a company like Boeing, I see them as leaders in the aerospace industry. They're the U.S.'s largest manufacturer as well as exporter. And they're really one of only two companies in the world that do what they do. If you're going to buy a big commercial airliner, you're either going to buy a Boeing or an Airbus. And those are your only two choices. And so right now, while things are not going well for Boeing stock, I think that they're going to work this out. And although there is a probability that things could get worse, the stock price could go lower, I just think that they're a big enough company that they're going to weather this storm. And over time, this is going to work out. Whether that's three months or three years, I don't know. But I'm willing to take that risk and have a company like Boeing in my portfolio. And like I mentioned before, it's only 3 or 5% of my overall portfolio. So I not only have Boeing stock, but I have another 20 or 30 other stock positions to invest in just in case things don't go the way I think they're going to with Boeing. But hey, that's just my opinion. Thanks for everybody's questions. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. So let's start out with a big announcement. I am officially announcing myself as a candidate for the 2020 presidential election with a caveat. Um, I am not an official candidate. I, I'm saying I'm running for president. You're free to write me in on a ballot or not if you listen to my slogan, which is don't vote for me. But I am not appointing a campaign manager. I am not going to fill out any paperwork. I am not going to try to get on a ballot. If somebody tries to get me on a ballot, good luck with that. But I, I don't think it'll happen. Um, so when I say I'm running for president, I'm running for president in a completely private way. I'm not using any public money. I'm not taking any donations. And I'm not spending any money for the purpose of gaining a vote because I am opposed to paperwork. And I think paperwork is the devil. And I don't want to tell the government any more information about me than I already have to by law. So when I say I'm a candidate, that is the format in which I'm announcing my candidacy. The government can go screw. Anybody can do this. If they don't like it, they should have been more tyrannical than they already are with the laws that they wrote. And they can piss off. I, I did see some humor today already from this. And humor is one of the goals that I have for this. I'll talk about my other goals in a second. But Jason from PA, who calls in all the time, writes in all the time, he made a comment on Facebook. I love this comment because it is the kind of shit that I would do if somebody made me president. It says, Jack, I'm going to laugh my ass off if your listeners actually get you on any state ballots. I'll laugh even harder if you beat any other candidate. And by God, if you win, I'll laugh and snort as I watch 
watch you cry and be like, dang it, I don't want to move to D.C. President, and he's, he's apparently now he's a newscaster. President Spirico once again refuses to sign any bills into law. Meanwhile, President Spirico is holding another press conference on the newly added swales and terraces recently put in place across the grounds of the White House and will be detailing 30 weeds Americans can plant and eat. Meanwhile, no protesters have crossed into the White House lawn since President Spirico planted black locusts along the entire perimeter fence and then installed 60 beehives. Apparently, the viral video of the last school who tried to hop the fence and disrupted two hives has dissuaded protesters from any further attempts. Meanwhile, we'll continue our Friday coverage of President Spirico next week. What can we say? We rather dig President Jack's Free American Mead Fridays. That's right. Every Friday, the president gives away several gallons of mead, and yours truly will be right here every Friday providing coverage. Um, excellent. Excellent. I don't want anybody to take this too seriously. But I am going to tell you why I'm doing it, and it does have a serious connotation. Because what I'm going to start doing, and it'll probably start next week, the site is up, it's there, you can buy some bumper stickers, you're going to be able to get t-shirts and some other crap, um, but I'm going to be putting out videos that actually make really powerful points that end with why you shouldn't vote for me, or start with why you shouldn't vote for me. This would be an example. America, you shouldn't vote for me because apparently you like having people in prison who have absolutely no victims in their supposed crimes. There's nothing I can do as President of the United States about people thrown in uh, prison at the state level for this, but any federal prisoner who is in, the, in prison for any crime that doesn't have a victim will be pardoned on day one of my administration. You don't want that. You don't like that. You're fine with people being put in prison who have no victims, so by God, do not vote for me. That's one example of a video that will be coming. They'll be on YouTube. They'll be on Instagram. They'll all be less than a minute. They'll be easy to share. And make no mistake about this. It is a publicity stunt. It is absolutely 100% a publicity stunt. So when somebody says it's a publicity stunt, say, yeah, he said that. Number two, yes, I absolutely am ripping off Richard Pryor from Brewster's Millions. Yes, those of you who keep telling me this, I know his slogan was, vote for none of the above. Okay, but I'm not completely written, writing, uh, ripping off Richard Pryor. I'm just borrowing his idea. I'm also not spending $30 million to make $300 million. I'm going to sell some bumper stickers and T-shirts and make a few bucks to buy some beer and mead. Okay, and I'm going to try to get through some people's thick exterior and make them think. I don't expect to change the world, but if one or two people out of this whole thing go, I never thought of it that way for five seconds and it opens their mind, then I will have achieved my goal. And next, I want to mock the entire political circus that has convinced Americans that it's okay to take freedom, to trample liberty, to interfere with people's lives, to use the force of the state so long as it's doing the things you want. Because that's what people... Re people are out there constantly running their mouth about liberty and freedom and the Constitution and our founders. And people who shit on the Constitution daily in our government wrap themselves in the Constitution when it suits them. It's all bullshit. The entire point of the founding of this country was to provide as much liberty to the individual as possible. And the Constitution, in my opinion is a failure, because if that was its goal, look at what you have. And I know what you'll say, because it's the same thing I say. It does matter. It does put some restraint on government. It absolutely does. I had a debate recently with, with Peter Kionis, free man behind the wall. 
He said it doesn't do shit. I said, Heller versus D.C. alone says you're wrong. But it's still a failure. I agree with that. It's still a failure. If the purpose of the Constitution is to keep the federal government from trampling on the rights of the individual, which it is, it has failed. And it has not failed because it's not strong enough. It's failed because America is too damn weak. That's why it's failed. It's failed because America is made up of a bunch of weak-ass bitches who want people to give them shit. And it's not just Democrats that are weak-ass bitches that want people to give them shit. It's true that the left generally wants more money or physical shit. What the right generally wants is the force and authority of government to enforce their moral will on other people who don't give a shit about your religion or your faith or your beliefs, but don't want to interfere with your own. That's the truth. The Constitution isn't too weak. Americans are weak. And I'd like to slap America around a little bit and see if I can get anybody who's currently weak to toughen up a little bit. I don't care what your political stripes are. I'm an equal opportunity offender in America. That is why you should not vote for me. Don't vote for me. And I'm going to love it when people say, He's crazy. He wants this or he wants that. And I, all I want you guys to ever respond with instead of defending my position is, what's wrong with you, moron? He said not to vote for him. Because that is the strongest statement against the bullshit of today's society that I can make. I have no interest in controlling your life. So I don't want any power over it. And not only shouldn't you vote for me because I don't want that power, you shouldn't vote for anybody that does. That's why I'm running for president, and that's why I want you to not vote for me in 2020 as I provide a clear vision for America. Go ahead, Democrats, rip me off so I can make you look like a bunch of yardbird assholes like you are. Anyway, next up, I wanted to cover one more thing today, and that is... The deadly coronavirus. Ah, ha, ha, ha. It's going to get you. I saw one today. The, 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 the Wuhan, China, where this thing started, is now like a zombie wasteland with dead bodies laying in the street. I posted a meme of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and it said, I'm sensing a level of total and complete bullshit that I have not sensed in a very long time, as a response to that, because that's bullshit. Um, this thing is bad. It's not a cakewalk. It's not as bad as Ebola, but it seems like it spreads a little easier than Ebola, but it still doesn't spread very easily. Um, this is something that comes from animals, and it generally doesn't transmit well into people unless we eat the animals or somehow ingest some byproduct of the animal, especially undercooked. Uh, coronavirus itself is not new. I saw some tinfoil hat bullshit yesterday. They, they created this in the early 2000s, and they patented it in 2015, and it just ex the patent just expired, and now they're using it on us. Oh, my God. Some of you people, oh, this is why democracy is a problem, because that person votes. That person that said that votes. And they posted a link to a patent on a coronavirus, which is the SARS virus, which is also a type of coronavirus. And you know what else is a coronavirus? The damn common cold is a coronavirus. This is a different coronavirus. It's not new. And the reason that governments patent viruses and illnesses is so that any research that's done on them remains in the public domain and can't be, pat can't be patented by a private institution and thereby hold people for ransom, hold ransom against people for a treatment. 
That's why that happens. As much as I hate government, I get why they do that. At least the intent. Usually the intent fails. But that's, that's what that one's about. It has nothing to do with this one. So, here's the lesson in this, though. This is not going to wipe out the global population. No one in North America will turn off an Xbox because of this. You might actually even someday know somebody who got it, got sick, or even died from it. It is possible, but it is highly, highly improbable. Everybody, we have two confirmed and one suspected case in America. Yes, and all three of those people were in China, ground zero, in Wuhan province. All of them. All of them. Let me read John Pugliano's comments on this first, because it's going to tie right in with what I have to say. He just had three bullet points. He said since he did not include anything about this, he wanted to add, um, so far the coronavirus is having a very muted effect on the market. He's taking this from a uh, financial perspective. The S&P 500 is off 0.18% off record highs. Uh, VIX is at a very calm 13. The, this mild reaction is unusual given that SARS and Ebola both called corrections, caused corrections of 10 to 15%. Both of those were not going to have any real impact either, but yet they caused a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, and he says, maybe it's too early for panic, or maybe this is yet again another signal of just how resilient the market bull rally is. We'll have to wait to find out. Here's what I actually think. The media loves to hype and lather this shit up like they did with SARS, like they did with Ebola. Both of us, I told you not to worry about. Um, and they really like to make things about this go crazy, but they're really busy right now. Uh, waxing hysterically over the shit show that is the impeachment hearing. If the impeachment hearings were not going on right now, they would be on TV, wash your hands, sneeze in your sleep, oh my God, you're going to die, every day, all day long. And we would have a market off by 10 to 15%, because the market was in those instances wasn't like, oh my God, we're pulling back because this is actually going to happen. It's we're pulling back because we're afraid of people's reactions to this bullshit. And it's not happening because they have something else to give you 24-7 wall-to-wall coverage of as they all intellectually masturbate over the possibility of a president being removed from office, which they all actually know is not going to happen. You have a better chance of dying due to a lack of adhesive ducts than Donald Trump has of being removed from office by impeachment. I'm still not going to tell you where that reference is from, and it has nothing to do with ducks in my backyard. It does have something to do with TV, though. More useful TV than the news. All right, so that's where we're at there. Now, but the lesson is, the reason this is not the big one is a couple things. First of all, it's actually highly treatable. If you get 450 cases of something and only 20 people die from it before you even really understand what it is, that's pretty mild. The infection rate is actually pretty low. Assuming China's not lying about the numbers, and we don't really have any reason other than some bullshit, nonsense, tinfoil hat crap to believe that they are, you're talking about a city with about 11, almost 12 million people in it with 450 people infected at ground zero and 20 deaths. Again, you're more likely to die from a lack of adhesive ducts in your bathtub. By the numbers. More people will die in their bathtub in, in America this week than will die from the coronavirus, this particular one. I promise you, I will bet you money, and I will win. But that's because it has a relatively low infection rate in the first place, and even though they do have now human-to-human -human transmission occurring, it takes significant exposure, and it has been limited to people 
who have been like in the same household long term or healthcare workers treating somebody in close proximity, body fluid type, like almost like Ebola level exposure required for transmission. So it doesn't transmit easily human to human. It is not likely to mutate and change that based on the type of virus in the history of coronaviruses. It is not new. It is not new. It is not new. It is not new. One more damn time, America. It is not new. Turn the TV off. This thing is not new. It wasn't fabricated in a lab to wipe you out. If they fabricate something in a lab to wipe you out and they release it, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Start wiping people the hell out. Fast. If you want to do that, it's not that hard. They're floating the idea to see if people are okay with it. I mean, that's the kind of stupid shit people say. The reality, though, is you have something that occurs in a far-off part of the world, and a couple weeks later, it's in Washington, I think Minnesota, and possibly Texas, three people. What if it was something that easily transmitted from human to human? And I'll tell you one thing about China. China does not F around. They're like, what? Like, if it's not that big a deal, why are they quarantining, like, three cities and shutting down airports? Because China doesn't F around. I'm not saying it's good or it's bad. I'm just saying when there's something like this, China puts the kibosh on that shit fast. And they have the totalitarian government that makes it possible to do. And they have people that are willing to obey things like quarantines. It's because it's a cultural thing there. So that's why, because they want it, because it's not nothing. Right? But that very authoritarian response by China alone is a big reason you can relax here in North America. But if you had something that was as easily transmitted as the flu, uh, person to person, that had the death rate this thing does, which again is, seems to be about 20 out of 450, if you do the math and reduce that, it's about like 4% off the top of my head, 4.5%, something like that, you, you would have tens of millions of people dead really, really fast. Like a few months. And it, in my opinion, and I'm not a doctor, but in my opinion, studying history and just having a basic rudimentary understanding of how viruses and bacterium work, it is only a matter of time before that type of combination gets together. And what you have to understand is if we get something with a high spread rate and difficult to treat that has a 1% death rate, we have a problem of global, huge problem if that happens. And again, I'm going to tell you, I think it's only a matter of when. So I think when something like this pops up, and even when the media is like, oh my God, oh my God, and it's just bullshit fake news like it always is, okay? And, and now it's muted, and they're actually being a lot more honest about it because they have some other monkey-flinging bullshit to, to, to wave in front of your face. If it was a slow news time, they wouldn't be as honest as they're being. Right, But when something like this happens, it's a good time to think, well, what if it was much more serious? And we were in a situation where we need to do a self-imposed quarantine. Because people say to me, well, what would you do if it was? I would bug in hardcore. And anything I was lacking in my preps right now, if I thought this was serious, I would go out and shore those up so that I knew I could stay here 100% of the time, nonstop with my family for 90 days minimum. And that would probably be enough time for the authorities to get enough control over it to where it becomes reasonable for things to move again. And it would 
devastate the economy. But there is only one foolproof thing that you can do with an illness like we're talking about, and that is don't get exposed to it. And and none of these illnesses are the kind of illnesses where, like, your neighbor two blocks down the road sneezes and it flies through the air and gets picked up by magical fairies who travel to you and sprinkle it on you. Like, you have to go places where other people are to get any of these illnesses. So self-imposed quarantine would be the safest thing you could do. And this is a good time to think about the fact that of all the shit people worry about, this is the one that's most likely to eventually get us. It's more likely than the scenarios people come up with for financial meltdowns. We are going to have a very bad recession, I would say, in the next 10 years. And probably more like in the next three to four. Very bad. And when I say very bad, I'm like 2008 and maybe worse than that. And then we'll have recovery, and then we'll have another big recession at some point. Why? Because that's how cycles work. But like, if you think we're going to have a dollar burn down and have patriots to come and collapse, a.k.a. James Wesley James Rawls, just stop. That's none, of, none of the worst financial breakdowns in the world have ever worked out that way. And the whole thing is a fake system anyway, so that means we can replace it with another fake system. You know, we're going to have nuclear war or some shit. Get, get out of here. The countries that have nuclear weapons don't want nuclear war. You know, I mean, come on. But a pandemic is something that's natural. And that's something we have to remember. Anyway, keep your powder dry, stay prepared. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, remember, if you want to help support the show, not only can you become a member of the MSB and support us that way, you can do your online shopping at T-SPAS. I call it the, heart, the, the painless way to uh, help support the show because you're probably going to buy something online in the next week or so anyway. And when you do, if you just go to T-SPAS first, you'll help support us no matter what you buy. You will see all of my Amazon reviews there and anything on there. I own it. I spent my money on it. I bought it. If I needed it again, I'd buy it again. Or I will not recommend it. Today's item of the day is one of my favorite books. Uh, it's Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tossenmeyer. Now, Eric Tossenmeyer is the guy that did the really hard work in the two-book um, thesis that is Edible Forest Gardens by Dave Jackie and Eric Tossenmeyer. Eric is the guy that got all the data together and did the work that makes that two-book set like belonging on the, the, the shelves of every permaculturist. However, it's a very high-level, academic-level thing. And it, it's probably not a book for everybody. It's for people like me and Nick Ferguson that geek out on shit like that and want to know as much as we can about everything that will grow in North America. But if you just want to know what can I grow that I can eat in my backyard that's perennial, meaning it'll come back year after year after year, then this is the book you want. It costs a hell of a lot less, which is nice. Again, it's called Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tossenmeyer. And there's another really great book he wrote, and there's a link in the, the write-up today called Paradise Lot. I recommend that, too. Check it out. And Eric is an awesome writer, and I've learned a tremendous, about, uh, a tremendous amount about plants from Eric. And it, I brought this around because it's almost February, and then March is going to go like that, and we're going to be in April, and we're spring. We're going to be in the growing season so fast this year, it's going to shock you. So planning what you want to grow in the coming season, the time to do that was last month, but the next best time is right now. And this is a great book to do that with. Again, Perennial Vegetables 
by Eric Tussenmeyer, available with all my reviews at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Rush. And uh, John Adam, when he put this list of Rush songs together, he gave me like 10 songs and said pick five for the week uh, in remembrance of Neil Peart. And I saved this one for Friday. It's called Wish Them Well. And I, I saved that because, one, it's, it's one of Rush's more recent uh, releases, 2012. So we're only talking eight years ago. Also, and I have the whole link to the Song Facts article on this song, um, it was actually one of the most difficult drum pieces for Neil Peart to play. That's like saying difficult for like Mozart to write. I mean, Neil Peart was the drummer's drummer. And he struggled. And this piece is one of those things, I think, where it took me a long time to understand why people that are musicians really appreciate music better than people who aren't, who just listen to it, even if you really love music. Because you listen to something, and, go, ah, yeah. and you have no idea how hard that thing is to replicate. Um, and so this doesn't, if you don't know drumming, it doesn't sound that complicated. But apparently, this is an incredibly complicated Uh, drum set to play. And, and Neil worked through it and was able to do it. He also was able to do it eight years ago. One of his most challenging things only eight years ago. And at 67, very recently he passed away. So I don't want to bring anybody down on a Friday or anything like that, but this is a call to make the most of your dash. Because I'm pretty sure that Neil Peart didn't expect to check out before 70. I don't think most of us in the modern times expect to check out before 70. And any of us can. And we can be at the top of our game one day and eight years later gone. Or we can be at the top of our game one day and eight days or even eight hours later gone. One of my best friends that I've ever had in the world was a gentleman named Hal Dodd. He was 41 years old. He went out jogging. He took care of himself. He was in good shape. He came home. He called his wife, told her he felt great. And about eight hours later, when she got home from work, she found him standing right where he had made that phone call from. He had a heart attack and died right in the entryway of his house, had his cell phone in his hand. So quick that he didn't have time to match 911 send and passed away. But one thing I can say about Hal Dodd is he influenced a lot of lives and he made a lot of people better for him having been in the world. So when you see somebody like Neil Peart go from being able to do the amazing things he did to being gone in a relatively short period of time. It's a call to do more. This is also a great song to kind of go out on from a standpoint of philosophy. Wish them well. Neil, Neil Peart wrote this song. He wrote most of Rush's songs. He said that he used to write music with anger. He also used to write music with the belief that if he could say just the right things just the right way, it would wake people up and they would change. And he realized as he got older that that's not going to happen. You might change the way some people think, but in the end, people are going to do what they're going to do. And most people, even when they're doing what you don't want, are doing the best that they can. And all that you can really do is wish people well and be an example. And he said that probably won't make them change, but it's still a good way to live. That's why I saved this to the final day of Rush Week. A tribute to Neil Perk. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.